Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. There it is. Okay. All right. Um, I, I want to show that again to give you single folks hope um, because... Uh, I just married completely out of my species. I really did. Just completely out. Most men do. Um, but I bring you greetings this morning from uh, my wife, Kelsey, who is preaching at our church this morning in Kansas City. And uh, probably a better message, just be real honest. Uh, Kelsey, I bring you greetings from Kelsey and from my children, Jackson, Grayson, Zion, Zoe, Anna, Mercy, Piper, Creed, Cadence, and Scout. Yeah, it's no joke. It does sound kind of crazy to say them all loud like that. I, I bring you greetings from my 10 kids. And I come to you this morning. I tell you all that. I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story here before I really dive into some principles. But I want you to hear this. I come, I believe this word. I said it in the first service. I'll say it in the second. I believe it is timely. For the season that our nation is in and where you are, but I also come with equity, okay? I'm a practitioner. What I'm going to challenge you to do, we're doing. I'm not saying we're doing it great, but we're doing it. And let me just explain. There was a day when we were really actually quite normal. Um, But there comes a time in the life of everyone who feels passionate about something that you encounter somebody who disagrees with you but they have a point. You ever do that? Like, you're, you're, you're just so frustrated with them, but there's that one thing they're right about. That came to us in 2005. We were launching J-Hop DC. My wife and I were all a part of that, and our three sons, we only had three back then. But our three kids were there, and we are um, praying for the ending of Roe v. Wade. We're standing on the steps of the Supreme Court. God, oh God, oh God, that you would soften the hearts of the justices that one day, if it ever came back around, that Lord, that you would shift things. Now in 2022, that seems very real. In 2005, that was like the dream of angels. Nobody with a right mind or legal understanding thought that was going to happen. Many people, even in the church, told us, just let it go. Just let it go. When the Lord puts a burden on your heart, there is never a shortage of people who would tell you to tone it down. They just come out of the woodwork, and they think they're ministering to you. (laughs) Your greatest imagination can only conjure a shadow of what God wants to do. And this, I mean, this city, this is a city of dreamers. Many of you, you're here on a, like a wing and a prayer. You're dreaming, and you came here to do this. I'm telling you, ignore the naysayers who don't carry the fire in their heart for what God put in your heart to do. Doesn't make you different. It just means you're accountable for something they're not accountable for. Don't take on others' burdens, but don't surrender your own. So enough of the sidebar. Back to my story. It's 2005. We're standing in front of the Supreme Court. Oh, God, end abortion. It's snowing. It's January. It's quiet. It's muffled. We don't hear much except for the voices of protesters who are standing behind us yelling at us because apparently praying silently is offensive. 
And they begin to yell, and I'll never forget, my, my son, who's 29 now, was 12 at the time, he's standing right here, and this woman yells right behind him. She goes, what are you going to do if you win? What are you going to do if you win? You guys don't want these babies any more than these mothers do. There are times when your critics have a point. And we had to go home and talk about that and say, what does that mean for us? Kelsey and I began to pray about it, began to ponder, and we decided that for us, I'm not advocating this for everybody, some of you are anticipating very awkward conversations on the way home, <laughs> which I'm totally fine with. I'm, I, that's how, that's how you know, big things start. But it's not for everybody, this call, but it was for us. And it's on the church. And so we began to pray about it. We said, yes, we do want the babies. We want an answer for that. We want an answer for that. What are you going to do if you win? So in June 2006, I began talking to an adoption professional. And I called her. I knew her pastor. We were friends. And she called me. She said, uh, you wanted some information? I said, yes, we want to adopt. We have no paperwork filled out. We have no understanding of the process. And we have no money. <laughs> and she said, that's not a problem at all. I found out later she went to her pastor. She says, clown says he has no money. <laughs> like, and and the, the pastor said, he's a missionary. He'll figure it out. He's, he never has money until he's got to do what he's got to do, and then he has money. <laughs> that was June 6th. No money, no paperwork, no nothing, no understanding, no sense. October 2nd, I'm standing in our bedroom uh, at, at 4.15 in the afternoon. I get a phone call. It's a social worker from Las Vegas. And she says, sir, you don't know me, but your name's come across my desk. There's a little girl who's been born in Las Vegas. What do you think? And I guarded my heart. I'm telling you, adopting is like taking your heart out, laying it on a table and saying, anybody want to take a whack? Like, it's, it's scary. Because that fear of, that a child has, does anybody want me? An adoptive family has going, does anybody want me to want them? And I said, how many families are you talking to? Because I want to know, am I one of three? Am I one of eight? And I'll never forget what she said. She said, buddy, if you want her, come get her. The word of the Lord to the church is if you want them, go get them. It's not easy. We do things all the time. People go, oh, I'd like to adopt, but it just seems so hard. Same person who says that spends like one day every week, trying to knock a ball into a little hole a quarter mile away. <laughs> Never does it in his entire life. Like, it, why? Because it's hard. But he does it every weekend. We all do the hard stuff we want, okay? If you want them, go get them. Just a word about provision really quick. So we had been raising money all summer from friends, family members, beg, borrow, steal, whatever it took. Hey, we're adopting. Will you help us? We did events. We did, you know, spaghetti dinners, the whole bit. We had raised a lot of money. Not enough, but a lot. That adoption was going to cost us about $40,000. Now, we've been in ministry since, like, we were 21 and 19. We've never had more than two nickels to rub together. But we had raised a lot of this money, but the time came and I realized we were $7,000 short from the check that they were going to expect when we got to Las Vegas. She said, can you come? I said, I'll be there tomorrow. We drive to the airport in Kansas City. I open my laptop and a friend I hadn't talked to in years emailed me and said, I understand you're adopting. 
I know you're going to Las Vegas to, to get this little girl. I just saw a documentary on revival in Las Vegas, and I'm so stirred. I want to invest in Las Vegas. I want to send you the $7,000 you need. We land in Las Vegas, race to the hospital. Actually, we stopped at Best Buy and got a camcorder. Remember those? This was like 16 years ago. Bought a cam. We had three sons up to this point and had like five pictures total of all three kids, but we're getting a girl. So we go to camcorder, and we go and we walk into this nursery. It's the strangest feeling in the world to walk into a room with maybe 15 babies and bassinets, and one of them's yours, and you don't know which one it is. We walk down, and this woman scoops up this beautiful little girl and hands her to us, takes us in the back room. My wife just sits down, and we just weep at the goodness of God over what he has done here. We named that little girl Savannah Zoe. Savannah Zoe, it's based in the idea of Ezekiel 16, where the Lord finds Israel lying in a field, and he picks her up, and he washes her off, and he makes her his own, and he adopts her, and he raises her. Savannah Zoe from an open field life. Later, we put two and two together. Las Vegas means open meadow. We found this little girl. And the Lord, by his graciousness, has allowed us to raise her. So now we've got three sons and a daughter, which is a game changer. And we're waiting in Las Vegas because they are going to fill out paperwork and you know, do the final legal things. And I'm sitting in the, uh, the laundromat of the hotel in this, this Las Vegas hotel uh, laundromat and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the dryer spin and it's got for the first time in my life it's got little pink clothes in it and I'm just weeping man I'm just a train wreck and I remember a guy walks in takes one look at me sitting in the laundromat bawling my eyes out just walks out he's like I don't know what he was looking for but I was not it and he left we came home we started talking to our friends about adoption and what we discovered was so many people have this in their heart they really do. They just don't know where to get information. They don't know where to start. So they came out of the woodwork. Adoptive families clump together faster than homeschoolers. Like they just find each other. We've homeschooled. I'm not, if you're homeschooling, I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. But so people started coming to us. How do we do this? We started coaching them and started helping them raise money. And, and then about two years into it, my wife said, what would happen if a woman wanted to make an adoption placement? We were not even ready. I said, well, yeah, I guess you're right. She said, we should do a home study. I said, well, yeah, I guess we're right. So we sit down with a social worker. We said, we'd like to do a home study. She said, do you have an agency? We said, no. Do you, is there a birth mom somewhere? No, we just want to do a home study. She said, okay. My wife said, how long will it take? She said, oh, you know, maybe eight weeks, but I can do it in maybe three weeks, but there's a $400 charge. My wife said, we'll do it. And I'm like, where'd you get $400? You know, like... <laughs> Why are we rushing? There's a, so we rush it. We rush a home study. It gets done on a Wednesday in September of 2008. Thursday morning, I get a phone call from a stranger. Stranger. He said, my sister-in-law just had twins in Florida. The state's not going to allow her to, to raise them. Do you know anybody who would want twin girls? That was Thursday. Friday afternoon, we walked out of a hospital in Florida with twin baby girls. Anna River and Mercy Rain representing what God is doing and the mercy of God. We walk out. It was so fast. I had no, I had no car seats. I like to go to Target across the street from the hospital. I'm in the parking lot of the birthing center taking car seats out of boxes, and people are walking by looking at me going, that is the laziest man on earth. He should have done that weeks ago. You know? And I, I, I want to tell him, I didn't know, but that just sounded dumber. 
their beautiful birth mom. She said, I just have, I have three questions for you. She said, uh, how do you feel about mixed-race children? These are things birth moms ask. And I said, well, I have one at home. Zoe is African-American Latino. I said, and I didn't know what race you were when we got on the plane. So she, that, that satisfied her. She said, what do you do for a living? Explain that to her. And she said, do you, would you mind sending me pictures once in a while? I said, absolutely, not a problem. With that, she checked these little girls out of the nursery. She handed them to us in a, in a, uh, a closet off, the, off the, the little nurse's area. We stepped into this closet. We're like, she hands us these babies. She kisses them on the head, says, this is your mommy and daddy, and she goes back to her room. Bravest thing I've ever seen a human being do. We're standing in a closet in the hospital holding babies, and it dawns on me, we don't even have wristbands. About that time, a nurse comes in after a bedpan. She's like, who, what, hi, who? It's like, okay, here, take them. And so, but anyway, we get, the, we get the babies, we take them home. We're home with the, now, by this time now, we have three boys, three girls. We're home six weeks, we find out we're pregnant. I now have three 13-year-old girls. Can I just raise up some intercessors right now? Does anybody? Two years later, three boys, four girls. The twins' aunt, biological aunt, calls us. And she says, we have just reconnected with their mother. Their mother's has got some life-controlling issues. And she's pregnant again with twins again. And I said, literally, surely not. <laughs> like, I mean, I understand biology, but really. But in about 30 seconds, I went from surely not to, what is she going to do with these twins? And this was the linchpin for me. This is what's, what, in 30 seconds, which snapped it, was in my mind, I saw my twin girls that I already had, and they were 15. And they were looking at me saying, they were more like us, and you didn't want them? I could not bear that idea. I said, what are you going to do with these? She said, uh, it's a lot to ask. I said, we'll take them. We'll take them. Then I had to call, <laughs> I had to call my wife. <laughs> she was good with it. Some months later, another set of twins, Creed and Cadence, were born. Katie's with me here today. <laughs> Katie's with me. Stand up, sweetheart. We bring Creed and Cadence home, and they are a joy. First set of twins are Japanese, Thai, Caucasian. Second set are Japanese, Thai, Puerto Rican. We're covering it a little bit everywhere. Two days later, I'm sorry, two days, two and a half years. Years seems like days. Two and a half years later, they call us again, and she's had one more little boy, and the state has taken him at birth. He's in the foster care system in Florida. We jump on a plane. We fly down there, sit down, talk to a social worker. Hospital social worker is probably six months out of high, uh, out of high school, probably out of college. It's a panhandle of Florida. It could have been high school. And she said, I'm sorry, he's in, the, he's in the foster care system. This isn't going to work. We said, we have four of his siblings. His mother wants us to have him. 
She said, I'm sorry, that's not how it works. He's in NICU in the hospital for six weeks. We don't know anything. Later found out that the hospital NICU unit was hiding him for us. He was fine. They were keeping him because they knew if they released him, he'd get into the foster care system, we'd lose him forever. At the six-week mark, his biological aunt, who she and her husband are godly, wonderful people, asked the state, could we be the foster parents for him? They said, no, you don't live in Florida. You live in Virginia. Over the weekend, they rent a house and move to Florida so they can foster their nephew until we can figure out the adoption. At the 90-day mark, my lawyer, who over the course of years, I've probably bought a Jaguar. <laughs> Sorry, Bill. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't Bill. It wasn't Bill, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, clarify. I didn't buy, didn't buy Bill's Jaguar. My lawyer calls me at the 90-day mark. He says, I've got an idea. He said, about a year ago in family court, a local judge had to choose which family a baby should go to because the state had messed up. And the state should have put it with this family and left it with this family, and they fought for a year, and the judge had to make this Solomon-like decision. And he was furious about it. The judge was. And I said, well, how does that help us? He goes, well, he's still really mad at the state. And he said, the panhandle of Florida is really lower Alabama. Everything happens across the back fence. And my assistant is married to his clerk. So I'm going to his house this evening. So he goes to the judge's house. He reminds him of all of this. The judge gets really angry. And then he goes, your honor, it's going to happen again. Just what do you mean? And he tells him our story. And he goes, I know these people. They'll stop at nothing. And he goes, in a year, you're going to be in the same situation. And the judge says, what should we do? Which is a great position to be in. And our lawyer said, well, you could sign a court order removing him from state custody. The judge said, I would do that. And the lawyer says, good, because it's right here. Pulls it out. His clerk had written it earlier that day. Judge signs it. My, my lawyer calls me on the way home and says, come to Florida. We're going to serve papers on the state. We're going to remove the child from state custody, and he will be placed with you. So now we're five boys Five girls, score tied, pretty sure game's over. <laughs> and people hear that story, and I realize how crazy it is. Some of you have put me in a category of complete lunatic at this point, based on 20 minutes, which is a new record for me. But they ask, how do you say yes to 10? Like, I can't fathom that. How do you say yes to 10? I never at any point was asked about 10. Like, that was not the option. The Lord asked us, what about the next one? What about the next one? And what we discovered is, for our family, there was just room at the table. We could make it work. Now, since then, we've realized we cannot adopt them all. Like, some friends had an intervention. <laughs> like you need, you need to kind of find a way to, you know, like, upscale this, because you can't do this. We started by giving grants to families that were adopting. We found that it will be a little bit impractical after a few years. And seven years ago, we founded a private, nonprofit adoption agency called Zoe's House, named after our first daughter. And Zoe's House raises funds on the outside so that we can lower the cost and lower the barrier for families that want to adopt and so that we can give 
birth mothers the best care that we can give them. We are now branching out into foster uh, care, not in, in placements, but in Kansas, there are 500 kids in the system whose parents have had their rights terminated. Maybe mom's in jail, maybe mom, dad's dead, whatever the case, they are never going to be reconciled with their families. And if the church doesn't intervene or somebody doesn't intervene, they are going to age out of the system, which is just a nightmare. Kansas has come to us and Missouri as well in recent weeks and said, can Zoe's house help us place these children in families? And they've told us, you can place them nationwide. You don't have to be in Kansas. You don't have to. And those adoptions are almost free. So we're leaning into that space right now. And I, I told you that whole story. Some of you are like, do you have a Bible, buddy? Can you read a verse? I'm going to get to that in a minute. Okay. But I wanted to tell you that story so that you know when I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell the church that I've got some equity here. I'm not just watching from the sidelines. We are in the game, okay? So I want to give you two sets of lists of four. First four things of what we've learned, and the last four is a, a message to the church. Here's what we learned. The spirit of adoption can find its way into some incredibly dark places. One major abortion center in Kansas City, really the one that all of us have stood in front of in Kansas City and prayed over and, and laid siege to, that abortion center is ran by a father-daughter combo of doctors. And we have prayed for these folks by name for years. A couple of years ago, one of our staffers got a call from a young woman who was expecting. She said, I really think I'm going to make an adoption plan. We said, well, we can meet with you. We can can talk you through it. She said, okay, can someone give me a ride to my, my doctor? And they, we said, yeah, of course. So we send a staffer over to take her to the doctor. This staffer's been a part of the life movement forever, has prayed with Lou, has been, been into that whole deal. She knows all these. She's driving her to the doctor. She said, so what's your doctor's name? It's the abortionist. The abortionist also delivers babies. How do you, like... She gets into the doctor's office and is face-to-face -face with this person who she has prayed for and laid siege against in prayer for how many years? And this doctor is peppering her with questions about adoption. How do you do this? What about this? What about this? Why do you do this? What do you do? Finally, it's, it's the daughter of the father-daughter combo. Finally, it comes out, that daughter says, you know, I was adopted. The abortion doctor adopted, and the adoptee also does abortions. This is complex. The more we talk to her, this abortionist tells our staff member, I like the way you do this. I like how you treat these women. I like how you're caring for her. Could I get some printed information for our front desk? The Planned Parenthood in Kansas City has Zoe's house paperwork on the desk for young women who think, maybe I don't want to do this. The spirit of adoption speaks life, and when people have ears to hear it, life wins. At one point, we had a woman show up in our office, 40 years old, highly professional, walks in, she says, hello, I'm pregnant, I really can't be. Well, you got a problem. She says, no, no, she goes, I really cannot have another child. She goes, I just came from Planned Parenthood. I went in to get 
an abortion, and they told me I'm way further along than I, I realized. They won't do it, and will you help me? The message of adoption finds its way into some pretty cold, dark hearts, and there's no way for them to resist it. Second thing that we have learned is that birth mothers are heroes, and not every one of them should make an adoption plan. You know, the adoption industry is looked at a little bit as predatorial. It looks at preying on people. And we have just determined in our hearts that not everyone who is pregnant should necessarily make an adoption plan. Sometime back, Kelsey, my wife, went to a young woman's home. She called and said, I want to make an adoption plan. I've got an 18-month-old. That almost never happens. Almost all of our adoptees are, are, are newborns. If a parent wants to make an adoption plan with an 18-month-old, like the wheels have fallen off. Something, something tragic has happened. They go into her apartment. Kelsey said, we sit down. There's almost no furniture. There's clearly no food. There's nothing in this apartment. And the Lord begins to stir Kelsey's heart. And she says, why do you want to make an adoption plan? She said, I just think I have to. She goes, no, why do you think you have to? She said, because I don't have any money. I don't have anything. You shouldn't lose your kids because you're poor in America. Like, that's wrong. Kelsey said, if we would help you, get signed up for state services and help you with resources? Would you rather parent or make a plan? She goes, she began to weep. She goes, I want to parent. We said, let us help you do. Listen, for the life movement, that's a win. Okay, for the church, that's a win. In the adoption industry, sadly, often birth moms are not really taken care of very well. And we have just determined in our heart we will give them the care that we wish someone would have given our own moms. And adoptive families want that because the day will come when their children will look at them and say, how was my birth mom treated? And you owe them answers. One of the questions we ask young women is, what is your five-year plan? And they're like, I'm just thinking five months down the road. No, 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 don't think that way. This is, thinking that way has got you into this room. What? What's your five-year plan? We had one young gal who lived in western Kansas, little middle-of-nowhere town, pregnant by a son of the very prominent family in the town that didn't want to have anything to do with her. She worked at a Dollar General store, dropped out of high school. We said, what's your five-year? Like, what do you want to do in five years? She goes, I'm smart. I could go to college. We said, yes, you could. She goes, but I dropped out of high school. We said, okay, well, let's help you get a GED. Let's help you get on the path. You can go to college. Two years later, we're at a staff meeting. And we've got a phone in the office we call the bat phone because uh, when it rings, no matter what's going on, you answer that phone. It's the phone that birth moms call. And 24 hours a day, that phone is always manned. The bat phone rings. One of our, our staff members grabs the bat phone, meeting's over. She walks out. It's this girl who we'd helped two years earlier. She said, I'm standing in the dean's office, and I just made the dean's list, and I didn't know anybody else who would care but you guys. We've learned birth moms are the heroes in this thing. You've, you, it's, it, it, is the, it is the heart of Jesus that they would be well taken care of. The third thing we've learned is we can make it less expensive, but we can't make it free. We really don't want to. Because we are placing children into homes that will affect their eternal destiny. And who said that should be easy if that's what the Lord lays on your heart? It, it costs something, you know. Uh, we say that for all of our adoptions, when we adopted, 
Um, there was no Zoe's house that, <laughs> that helped us. Friends helped us, but we, we had to raise a lot of money. We had to raise about about as much as uh, a, a well-equipped minivan every time. That's, that's kind of how I put it in people's, people's mind. Whatever it costs to adopt, to adopt, to buy a minivan, that's what it costs us to adopt every time. But when I look back and I think, okay, if 15 years ago, if we would have taken that money and bought a minivan, that means today I have a 15-year-old minivan. Nobody wants a 15-year-old minivan. <laughs> but instead, I've got a nearly 16-year-old daughter who calls me daddy. What do you think I feel about the money that we spent? It was well, well worth it. We can make it less expensive, and we do with Zoe's house. We subsidize each adoption uh, by about $17,000. That's what we raise on the outside for each adoption that we do. And there is no tipping point. The, the more successful we are, the more money we raise. But that brings us to the fourth thing that I've learned is that pro-life people understand that adoption is pro-life 2.0. Like what you're hearing in the media about Christians not caring about moms or children, that is baloney. Because we have been sustained and, and this entire organization for seven years has run from people who love babies and love life and say, because we love that, we love this. And they realize that adoption really is the next frontier of the pro-life movement. So those are things we've learned along the way. Let me give you four growing convictions I have in relation to the church now. We, number one, is we are about to be confronted with the impurity of our own religion. How many of you have ever been to Kansas? A couple. Wow. I didn't recognize you. <laughs> In Kansas, you, you know, if somebody comes to visit, normally you recognize them. But when you think of Kansas, what, what, do, you, what do you think of? Corn? Land? Somebody in first service said Dorothy? Fair? Tuesday, Kansas voted on what we call the Value Them Both Amendment. In Kansas, our state Supreme Court has decided that our state constitution, written in 1859, has within it a right to unfettered abortion access. And so when they did that, they nullified all of the restrictions or offered opportunity to nullify all the restrictions that we had been able to place on abortion through the state legislature. took it all out of the state legislature's hands. So the legislature wrote an amendment to the Constitution saying, no, that belongs in the hands of the legislature. And that amendment then went before the voters of Kansas. Kansas, Ma and Pa Kettle, okay? Like this is, this is like conservative America. We're, in Kansas, we wear belts and suspenders at the same time. Like that's how conservative we are. And it lost. We're not in Kansas anymore. It lost big. It lost 60 to 40. In some counties, it lost 88 to 12. It was so contentious in Kansas that neighbors were yelling at neighbors. And some of you are like, that happens here all the time. It doesn't happen in Kansas. <laughs> 
Some of you may know uh, the name Joel Richardson. He's an author, fairly well known. Joel is a friend of ours, goes to our church. Joel had nine yard signs stolen out of his front yard supporting the amendment. And Joel's a bit of a character. On the ninth one, he stuck an Apple AirTag in it. And then he wrapped it with what he called uh, rat glue, which is like sticky on one side and incredibly sticky on the other. <laughs> and, and so the next morning when his sign was gone, he pulled out his phone and, you know, went four blocks over, found the guy had left the sign in the back of his trunk with the trunk open. <laughs> Joel goes and knocks on the door like, my sign's in your car. Like, you know, the guy's like, yeah, and the stuff ruined my shirt too. Like it was contentious in Kansas. But let me tell you, we've labored in the courts and at the polls about this issue. We've won some battles and we've lost some battles. But this I know, it's not about Roe v. Wade. It's not about the value of the both amendment. The referendum that is coming is on our hearts. And whether or not we actually want the children. If you look at Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6, very quickly, he says, Behold, and keep in mind now, this is the last word in the Old Testament before 400 years of silence. This is a mic drop. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. A lot of people actually stop right there. But it goes on to say, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Other versions say, lest I come to the land with a curse. And people read that and go, I don't know if the Lord would do that. Friends, if that happens, we did that to ourselves. He says, either hearts of the fathers turn to the children and children to the fathers, or there is a curse coming on the land that is the natural extension of broken relationships between generations. We're beginning to see it already with a complete disconnect between generations. And the curse that comes on us from that, we're thinking, oh, is that spiritual or is that physical? Yes, it's both. Because the culture and society that comes out of disconnected generations is chaotic at best. That's the chaos that's coming. There's a headache that is coming to the church when we realize that when the author of the book of James wrote that, that he was not playing in James 1, 27, when he says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In the original language, there is no and. It just says, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction, keeping oneself unstained from the world. It says that there is a sanctifying aspect to taking care of widows and orphans. That the church actually keeps itself pure by that activity. And the church has distanced itself from that activity and then wondered why the culture of the church goes to hell in a handbasket. Because we actually divorced ourselves from the thing that had the power to keep ourselves pure. So, very clearly, we're going to be confronted with the impurity of our religion. The second thing that the church needs to understand is that adoption is a potent demonstration of the gospel. The gospel can be demonstrated 
a lot of different ways. You can tell a lot of stories. You can tell a lot of parables Said of the first service. Some of you are old enough to remember the flannel graph. I lost most of you right there. Okay, before there were screens, <laughs> there were flannel graphs. And if you grew up in church, you might remember this, and they had all the little figures, and you could always tell how wealthy of a church you went to by how many pieces they had to put on the flannel graph. You know, if you had a big church, you had several poses of every disciple. But, you know, I went to a little church in North Dakota. We had, we had one Jesus. And no matter what story he was telling, Jesus was facing the same direction. You know, he's like, come on, follow me, guys. You know, that was, there's a ton of ways to express the gospel. But when Paul needed to do it in Romans, he said, let me tell you what it looks like. Romans 8, 15 to 17. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. He said, let me see, how can I explain this to you? Uh, it's not a flannel graph thing. It's not a, a adoption. You were adopted. You weren't born into it. But now, by some miracle of God, you're just not at the table, but you belong. You actually belong where you did not belong before. And there is a provoking that happens even in the hearts of unbelievers when they see the gospel lived out this way. In Romans 11, Paul says he's hoping that the demonstration of the gospel to the Greeks was in part to provoke the Jews to jealousy. The message and the practice of adoption provokes your neighbors. Because you know one thing my neighbors don't say to me? Is you guys don't do it. Like, they can say a lot of things. They can say, keep off my lawn. They can say, you know, is this your kid's bike in my driveway? But they can't say that we're not doing it. And it actually provokes them. After the death of Saul in 2 Samuel, David grew concerned about Saul's children who no longer had a father. And he sent somebody to go investigate. And the guy comes back and he's like, yeah, there's this one son, Mephibosheth, and he, he's lame in his legs. He was dropped as a toddler and, and he can't walk. And, you know, he's living in these palace ruins. And, yeah, and David says, bring him. Bring him. He brought him into his own home and sat him at the table of the king, not in a place where he belonged until he was placed there, and then he belonged there. John Mark McMillan's got a great song with a lyric that says, I'm a dead man now with a ghost who lives within the confines of these carbon ribs, and one day when I'm free, I will sit a cripple at the table, a cripple by your side. That is what the picture of adoption is. Yeah, you really don't belong, but I've decided that you do belong, and now we are one. It is a picture of the gospel. Third, the desire of a culture does not determine the value of a child. Right here in the shadow of Wall Street, you will understand this better than they do in Kansas. Okay, But what determines the value of a stock? The number of people who want it. There's a few other factors, but in essence, if only one person wants it, it's kind of worthless. Three people want it, it's unbelievable what it might cost. That's how we determine what things are worth. We have erroneously applied this logic to the value of life. Which is why your neighbors say things like, well, what about all those children that aren't wanted? 
Let me tell you something. You wanting them children, those children, or not wanting those children is not what determines if those children are valuable. The question of are they wanted is based in the mentality that gave us the slave trade and human trafficking. The idea that someone else's desire is what makes someone valuable. Let me tell you, friend, if you're in here this morning and you think that if you were to drop off the face of the earth, no one would miss you and nobody cares and nobody wants you, even if you're right, you are still incredibly valuable because our value is not determined by how many people want us. Our value is determined by the God who says, I put my DNA in that one. That's what makes you worth anything. And this idea of they're not wanted is a, first of all, it's a farcical argument. I could, I could fill this room with families with a phone call who would be happy to take a child. So they are wanted, but even if they're not, they're still God's children, and they're still valuable. Number four, for the past 15 years, we have positioned our life with this one strong conviction is that when the Bible says that arrows or children are arrows from the Lord, that that is true. If that's true, it changes everything about how we do about life. This is why. Because before the advent of arrows, if we were at war, I would have to physically go to you and beat on you with a stick. All right? My, my brother here, we're not at war, but just for instance, if we were at war, I would have to go to him with a club and address the issue. But then somebody invents a bow and arrow. And with an arrow, I can fire an arrow further and faster than I could have ever run and further than I could ever go. I can fire an arrow over the horizon of history where I will never even see it land. And I can have impact and I can wage warfare places that I can't even get to. So when the Bible says that children are arrows from the Lord, what it is saying is for those who will scoop up those broken arrows that are, is littered all over the ground, glue some feathers on them, straighten them out, and release them, they will have incredible impact places where we will never stand. Now, with 10 kids, there's a ton of things we just don't do. We just don't do. We don't travel that much. It's hard. There's a reason I only brought Katie, okay? <laughs> it's hard. We're having the time of our lives. But, you know, I mean, Kelsey's home with the other ones and preaching. Driving our ratty old van that looks like it should be selling ice cream out of the side of it. <laughs> but it's hard. We don't travel much. There's books I've just not written because it's hard. We're okay with that. Because most of the activity of our lives, what we're really trying to do, even in ministry, dirty little secret, we're looking for platform. Because we think platform matters. Platform is about renown. We are surrendering renown for the hope of impact. And so right now, nobody knows who we are. I don't care. If the Lord tarries 150 years from now, they will look at the tribe that we have raised and they will say, 
they were geniuses. It's the difference between impact and renown. As I close up, friends, let me just tell you, don't settle for renown. Don't settle for just being known in the little 70-year window you have on this earth. How pitiful of an existence is that? Set your heart on impact. I want to ask if our worship team would come up for a minute. And I want to broaden this thought for just a second here because some of you, there's, there's a, a narrow strata, and I can kind of spot you because it's kind of fun to watch, that understand you're going to have an awkward conversation on the way home because one of you is thinking about adopting and the other one isn't there yet. And by the way, that's how those things happen. Hardly ever does a couple just wake up and robotically go, we must adopt. You know, it's a series of awkward conversations and bless you. But for many, that is not the path the Lord has for you. And I, if, if you, I, well, I want to release you from, from that kind of thing because that's not for everyone. Truth is, not everyone has to adopt. Everyone can support. Everyone can be a part of it. We have people in our lives, had they not played that role in our lives, we could not have done what we did. And the reward is the same for them as it is for us. But let me just like disengage a minute from the topic of adoption or even the topic of, of the value of human life except for the value of yours. And ask yourself, am I chasing renown or am I positioning myself for impact? Am I making the choices in life right now that should the Lord tarry, as we used to say in the old Pentecostal churches, should the Lord tarry 150 years that your descendants will look back at you and go, man, they made the right call. They positioned their life that we would all be better. I want to ask you to just stand with me for a moment. If we could have the prayer team come forward. I want to pray over you. And we're just going to go back into worship. And if your heart has been stirred for this idea of impact, just disengage in a, for a minute from the, the adoption argument. It's not... I'm not even thinking, talking about it. Just, your life has been stirred by the idea of impact. I would encourage you to find somebody who could pray with you about the decisions and the life you're going to live to impact this world 150 years down the road. So, Father, we come to you with this beautiful church family that you are already smiling on. You're, you find such pleasure here. And now hearts are being stirred for the idea of impact. Positioning ourselves to matter in eternity. Make the decisions. Say yes to the right things, no to the other things. And in some cases it seems so counterintuitive because if we just did X, Y, Z, we'd get noticed. But where? Lord, we pray you would stir hearts to be noticed in heaven to make a mark on eternity. Not to settle for 50 or 60 years of what will ultimately be very temporary, temporal fame. We want impact, Father. I just want to go into worship now and if you would like prayer, I would encourage you to find someone up here to take a moment and pray with. We hope you enjoyed the message. 
You can also follow us on Instagram at Life Center NYC or YouTube at Life Center Church NYC.